live from New York. I'm Richard Quest, sitting in for Julia Chatterley. It is a Thursday, and here's what you really do need to know. The jobless numbers, the jobless claims fall in the United States. It's encouraging employment news from the latest state data from the United States. Taking on Trump, both Biden and Kamala Harris gave fiery speeches on their first presentation and appearance together. And oil slumps, the IEA is blaming the virus and the stalling air travel for the fact that what's happening with oil stocks and oil prices. It is Thursday. This is First Move. Hey, good day to you. Julia's off this week. I'm Richard Quest uh, sitting in. The markets and how we're looking before we get underway. The markets open in just, or the US markets open half an hour from now. And they're on, they're on target for a mostly higher open. The Dow's looking a bit iffy. But if you look at the Nasdaq, uh, the futures are turning higher after encouraging jobless claims numbers. Fewer than 1 million Americans filed for benefits last week. It's the first time the number's below 1 million since the lockdown began. It's a drop of more than 200,000 from the previous week at 963,000. However, the number of people still collecting benefits is still more than 15 million people in the United States, and that is exceptionally highly elevated compared to normal. And the enhanced aid for unemployment has now run out in the United States. That's $600 a week that uh, people were able to claim. And there is no sign that that money or that something similar is going to be replaced in the immediate future as the negotiations and discussions uh, continue. A new study says three in 10 unemployed workers are worried about paying for basics, basically like food and housing without the extra assistance. European stocks are lower. The DAX is falling for the first time in a week. It's as the US keeps its 15% tariffs on Airbus in the subsidy dispute that they announced yesterday. Carlsberg suspending stock buybacks. Asia, where, well, as you can see from the numbers yourself, it is a mixed bag. And the Nikkei was the best performer, closing at a six-month high, with investors looking ahead to this weekend's trade talks between the US and China. They will discuss a trade deal compliance but remember, we still haven't come out of phase one from the original part of the deal. And so to the drivers of the day. And we start with those U.S. unemployment claims or jobless claims at 963,000. It is 200,000 from lower than last week. Christine Romans, our chief business correspondent, is with me. That is to be welcomed, even though... It's at elevated levels. But, Christine, is this beginning of a trend lower? I see the last couple of weeks as the first clear sign that you might have had a plateau here in, uh, in layoffs. You know, Richard, you and I have done this for a long time. I never thought in my career I would say that 963,000 layoffs in one week was a good thing. But 963,000 is less than a million, and we have not been able to do that for 21 weeks or so. So the, the overall number is still devastating and staggering, the amount of joblessness and the job crisis in America. The direction 
of the economic figures, though, is what is welcome here. Uh, two weeks in a row of, of declining first-time unemployment claims. The continuing claims number, while historically ugly and high, is now 15.5 million. Uh, that's a little bit less than the past couple of weeks. And the overall number of people getting some sort of jobless aid from the U.S. government is now 28 million. That's down from the, from the, the low to mid 30 million range. So all of these numbers are moving in the right direction from a staggeringly devastating jobs picture overall. So getting a little better, but I I caution that every one of those numbers is still a family trying to figure out how to get its finances in order until we get to the other side of the pandemic. Which, of course, is that the point about that study that shows that most people are about awful in this day and age, food and basics. But Christine, the um, do we know and can we make any um, statements on the lockdowns that had to be reimposed, those parts of the country which tightened up because they got out of control, have we seen that effect in these jobless and jobless claims numbers yet? I think we haven't. And we're still seeing um, just, you know, you're still seeing a lot of layoffs every week, right? But fewer layoffs every week. One interesting thing about these numbers, the overall number, the 28 million people collecting some sort of a benefit, as the stimulus expires, you'll have people falling off the rolls simply because those programs don't exist anymore. So I think that's pretty important to, to keep an eye on as well. That bigger number, are people getting rehired or are people just falling off the rolls because we don't have these special short-term programs for gig, gig workers and the like? I do think that there's a lot of risk in sloppy reopenings and with school reopenings as well to getting more layoffs maybe sometime this fall, a second wave of layoffs. There's some economists who predicted that. But for the right now, for this most recent picture, you are seeing numbers finally showing signs of plateauing in terms of of the damage in the labor market. And now we just have to see what kind of what kind of improvement we can try. We can try to get. There is an urgency here still, though, I think, Richard, for stimulus. Um, I worry that maybe some in Washington see these numbers starting to slowly come down and they think there isn't an urgency for stimulus. There still is. Most economists and some Fed Fed presidents are saying unless you get stimulus, you will not get a decent recovery heading into next year. I saw that article on the, in, the, in the FT uh, on that. Don't start me on, on the stimulus at the moment, Christine. It, it's simply too painful, the thought of Washington arguing amongst itself while people are literally worried about how to put food on the table. Christine, Christine Romans, uh, we do have to talk about stimulus, of course, but not at the moment. Uh, thank you, Christine. <laughs> Good to see you. Now, you too. These economic issues were at the heart of what Joe Biden and Kamala Harris were talking about. Uh, the Kamala Harris, the new vice presidential nominee or presumptive, you know, get the idea for the Democrats. She slammed President Trump in her first speech as Joe Biden's running mate. He inherited the longest economic expansion in history from Barack Obama and Joe Biden. And then like everything else he inherited, he ran it straight into the ground. Now, the two of them, Biden and Harris, made their first public appearance as the Democratic ticket, both wearing masks, lots of socially distancing, and it gave Harris the chance to criticize the president's handling of the pandemic. This virus has impacted almost every country. But there's a reason it has hit America worse 
than any other advanced nation. It's because of Trump's failure to take it seriously from the start. Well, that stands us with us from Wilmington in Delaware, the, where the Biden's home state. And I'll let the one thing I notice again and again about the way Kamala Harris speaks, it is this prosecutor's forensic, um, basically, analysis leading to destruction of others' arguments. Yeah, it certainly was drawing on her own prosecutor roots. And, and you heard both Joe Biden and Kamala Harris forcefully argue against the president's handling of the coronavirus pandemic as they were trying to make this argument that a vote for them as the Democratic ticket would restore what they see as missing leadership in the White House. And you heard them criticize the president, saying that the reason that the coronavirus situation is the way that it is is because they believe he didn't take it seriously from the beginning and really placing the blame for that squarely on the president. Now, one other thing that was interesting about this event, as you heard Kamala Harris uh, use that line about President Trump inheriting an economy from the Obama-Biden administration and squandering it, that's actually a line that Joe Biden has used for quite some time. So it's interesting to see, as this partnership, this matchup has developed, how Kamala Harris is now kind of adopting some of that language, some of those arguments as she fully becomes part of this campaign. Now, in a short while, we will see Joe Biden and Kamala Harris here in Wilmington, Delaware, and they're attending a briefing on the COVID-19 by help from public health experts. That's the very first thing they're doing after their first full day as running mates together. And you saw yesterday they entered that event wearing the masks. It was all socially distanced. There wasn't a large rally with thousands of supporters, as you normally see at these vice presidential announcements and rollouts. There wasn't applause because there it was reporters. There was no one there to applaud for them. So you see them taking those uh, safety uh, protocol precautions uh, in their own events. We've seen Joe Biden doing that for a few months, just um, a few months during the coronavirus pandemic himself. But this is just one of the contrasts that they're trying to present with the president uh, heading into that general election. Arlette, science is with us there from Wilmington, Delaware. Thank you. To Europe now, and the number of new coronavirus cases is starting to surge. Spain which has already been a matter of concern until now, is now seeing as every daily infection rates shoot up. You can see from the graph there, Spain is the one in green. But it's not just there. There are rising numbers in Germany, which is the pink colour, the UK, slightly less so there, but France and Greece are all going up as well. Al Goodman is in Spain. What's gone wrong? It started off, Al, in the northern part of the country, round Barcelona. Now it's starting to spread elsewhere. What's happening? Hi, Richard. What's happening is that six weeks after lifting the nationwide state of emergency, which effectively did hold back and got down the coronavirus cases throughout the spring, now it's up to the regional governments, all 17 of them. I'm here in northwest Spain. They have a government, Barcelona, the Catalans, Madrid. All of these are dealing with it their own ways. And so there's a hodgepodge. uh, That's what the critics say. There's a hodgepodge approach to it. There's not a standard way of trying to battle this coronavirus. And you're seeing the cases surge. Also, there's uh, an admission that really there aren't enough contact tracers um, 
throughout the country, especially in the hardest hit areas, Madrid, Barcelona. Richard? Uh, quickly, Al, is there a feeling that they've lost control of this uh, spike, that they're, that they're going to find it very difficult to get it back under control? Well, at the, uh, one of the top health experts from the government has said a few days ago that, no, this isn't a second wave. They still can get it under control. But you're seeing these kinds of piecemeal things. So if the wearing of masks, mandatory in public spaces, even if you can't so even if you can social distance, that was not rolled out across the country at the same time since June when the emergency was lifted. It came region by region by region. Now, this region, Galicia, northwest Spain, has just said it's going to ban smoking in public places if you can't be socially distanced two meters or six feet apart. Now we're seeing that was uh, that just went into effect this day. We've already seen police officers talking to people smoking. The, the idea is that if the mask is off, you're smoking and you are asymptomatic, you can be blowing this virus towards someone else. Now we're seeing that several other regions, Madrid, Andalusia and others are studying doing something similar. So you're seeing that's the way that they're, they're trying to handle this. There's no unified approach right now, and that could be part of the problem. Richard? Al Goodman, who is in Spain there. Al, thank you. The pandemic is being blamed for the, for, for the slump in oil, according to the latest numbers. Rising COVID cases and cuts in or freezes in air travel are taking the toll. Claire Sebastian is with me. We saw in U.S. numbers yesterday, Claire, the way in which the price of oil has shifted in terms of petrol mm -hmm. and gasoline as part of U.S. inflation. The driving season's underway in the U.S., but elsewhere, it's an opposite source story. Yeah, Richard, this is uh, new information from the International Energy Agency, the, the body which advises global governments on energy policy, and they have downgraded their forecast for demand for this year. They, they come after OPEC doing the same thing yesterday. They say they now expect 91.1 million barrels per day in 2020. That's 8.1 million barrels per day less than last year, and it's a downgrade of 140,000 from their last estimate uh, a couple of months ago. So clearly, they are concerned. They say the reasons are that, that recent mobility data shows that the recovery in many regions has, in their words, plateaued. Uh, that is, of course, accepting Europe at the moment. They say that Europe is still pretty strong in terms of transportation. Uh, but the biggest reason, Richard, is air travel. They say that uh, the number of kilometers traveled was down 80% in April. It's still down 67% in July. That's two thirds down uh, in the busiest uh, season of the year for flying compared to last year. So that is really affecting demand uh, for jet fuel. And that is affecting their forecast for the year. Not a good sign for the global economy and the recovery. Claire Sebastian, Claire, thank you. Now we shall check in with other news stories making news around the world for the first time. Since the deadly blast in Beirut, Lebanon's parliament has met under very heavy security. They're approving a state of emergency that was imposed last week. It allows the army to prevent protests deemed threats to national security. Of course, the entire cabinet resigned under public pressure. That took place on Monday. Taiwan's foreign minister says China's trying to turn Taiwan into the next Hong Kong. CNN's Paula Hancock spoke exclusively to Joseph Wu, who talked about the recent visit to Taiwan by the U.S. Health Secretary, Alex Azar. The message was very clear. Uh, it was a show of support by the U.S. government to Taiwan. 
uh, not only to Taiwan uh, being successful in dealing with the pandemic, but also to Taiwan as a whole. Uh, the United States understands that Taiwan is under threat, either military threat or diplomatic threat, uh, and uh, the United States is a very close partner of Taiwan. Certainly tensions in the, in the region have been increasing in recent months. China has been carrying out more military drills. Taiwan has been carrying out more military drills. I mean, where does this lead? I'm worrying about the situation. Uh, it's, just, it's not just the Taiwan Strait. Uh, if you look at East China Sea, uh, our Japanese friends are very concerned about the Chinese sending vessels to the disputed waters all the time. The tension was also running high uh, in East China Sea. And look at the situation in Hong Kong. The international community is trying to figure out a way to help the people in Hong Kong. And look at the South China Sea. The militarization in South China Sea is also a uh, spot for concern. And there was also a uh, border dispute in between uh, India and China. So along the Chinese borders, there are plenty of issues for us to worry about. Now, you have said that you're worried Taiwan will become the next Hong Kong. Can you explain that? I think they will uh, try to impose uh, what they say, the one country, two system model on Taiwan. And that is turning Taiwan into the next Hong Kong when China is facing domestic difficulties. Uh, they might want to uh, divert their domestic attention by create a crisis outside China. And sometimes we worry that Taiwan might become a scapegoat of China's own problems. Uh, and in order to prevent China from taking Taiwan over or initiating any kind of force against Taiwan, uh, we need to handle cross-strait relations in a very prudent manner. There is a, an election coming up in November. You have had very strong support from, from the Trump administration. Do you believe you will have that from uh, if Vice President uh, Biden takes the, uh, takes the White House? Do you think that strong support would continue? We have support from both sides of the aisle. And I'm very confident that Taiwan-U.S. relations will remain strong and sound, uh, whatever happened in the Washington, D.C. And of course, the defense the defense of Taiwan is our responsibility and we'll continue to uh, strengthen our own defense capabilities and to show to the international community our determination to defend ourselves. But at the same time, uh, we can count on the U.S. support either in the security uh, type of cooperation or in the sale of uh, necessary weapons for Taiwan to be able to defend itself. Uh, just a moment, when we come back, driving in a pandemic We'll hear from the CEO of Vroom. It launched, or it IPO'd, and now we're getting the first numbers about who's buying and selling cars in the middle of a pandemic. And the robots helping COVID patients in Rwanda. Tech giving the country a lift. It's first move. Welcome back to First Move. We're moments away from the beginning of trade about to get underway. And before we get there, let's go to one of our top stories. Of course, uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris made their public debut as running mates in the uh, 2020 uh, presidential election. Uh, with me is David Gergen, CNN senior political analyst and professor uh, at the Harvard Kennedy School. I read your article, uh, David. Um, interesting you, you point out one important point that you think is the most significant about 
Kamala Harris, and that's the US Constitution. And for the benefit of viewers, allow yes. me to remind you, it says, in the case of the removal of the president from office or his death, resignation or inability to discharge the powers and duties of the said office, the same shall devolve on the vice president. So says Article 2, Section 1, Clause 6 of the Constitution. Tell me why that is the most significant where Harris is concerned. Well, we have a, in Joe Biden, a man who's now already 77, he would be 78 upon inauguration, the oldest president that we've ever had. And uh, he seems very in very good health, he's spry, uh, but at that age, you never know what's going to happen. So I think it's particularly important. It's important in every election. The, the most important decision that the presidential candidate makes is the selection of the vice president. But I think in this case, it's particularly important. Uh, one thing to add to that, Richard, uh, if you go back in history to the vice president since World War II, we've had 15 vice presidents since World War II. Five of them have gone on to be president in one way or another. In other words, Kamala Harris has about a one in three chance to become president of the United States one day, one way or the other. And bearing that in mind, the abilities that she brings forth, uh, she's not had, she's, I mean, she's had a certain amount of executive power as, as yes. Attorney General of California, but never run anything uh, sort of uh, of size. So I wonder, what is it that you find most appealing about her policies, her personality, that you believe does make her suitable to be the heartbeat away? I think it's the range of experiences that she's had uh, coming out of California in particular. That is, you know, as our biggest state, uh, that has been a proving ground for lots of people as governor to go on to be uh, president of the United States, most notably Ronald Reagan recently. When, when someone is, is active and successful at a, in a big, big state, that usually gives them a kind of executive authority, uh, experience that they need to be president. And she's not, she not only was a, an effective attorney general, uh, she was spotted even as attorney general in California as a future star of the Republican Party. She went on to win the Senate seat, of course, right. uh, from California. Uh, so if you look at the, I think if you look at the range, it's a, it's a, it's at least what we have had in previous presidents, and of course, compared to our current right. president, who had no background uh, and and running uh, anything in the public life, uh, it, it it he wasn't as well prepared as he might have been. People who come out of smaller states tend to be, you know, Bill Clinton at first had trouble. He came out of a smaller state, so did Jimmy Carter. But Kamala Harris comes out of a big state, a rough and tumble place, uh, and that and she's got a tough skin. All that said, Richard, the most the thing right now that's on people's minds is that yesterday was a buffo performance for both uh, Kamala Harris and for Joe Biden. She did as the, the word is widely spread now in the, in the political community. She brought spark to the Biden campaign. You know, he's been down in that basement. We haven't seen much of him. But uh, there was a lot of flourish uh, with her and they, they seem to have a warm relationship. Both gave good speeches. David, David Gergen, thank you. I appreciate it. David Gergen. Thank you, Richard. Good to talk to you again. Thank you. And always, as always. Now, the markets open shortly, the Thursday session. We'll wait and see what happens when trading gets underway. This is First Move.
Aces. The opening bell is ringing on Wall Street. Uh, the trading day in New York begins. Uh, very warm welcome to you. It is a Thursday. Interesting to see whether or not or how the day pans out in the markets, bearing in mind what we saw on the midweek session. Mixed to begin with. Very bullish, strong Nasdaq up 2%. So that takes it to new records. Uh, S and I beg your pardon. There we go. Now you see the way it was the yesterday's just turning through. Uh, yesterday's latest jobless claims report that we've had this morning. Fewer than a million people filed last week. Uh, it's the first time since March that we've seen that number under a million. Still very high at 963,000. No new aid on the horizon for the unemployed. And the fear is that the new stimulus won't come until next month, which creates its own range of vast problems. AMC shares are also rallying on track to reopen two-thirds of its movie houses. Now, the online car dealer Vroom had one of the most successful IPOs this year. Now, the stock is down after the first earnings report that it's given. The company reported bigger-than-expected losses due to the pandemic. Its outlook for the next quarter is downbeat. Paul Hennessy, the CEO of Vroom, is with me. Paul, I, I can't sort of say I, I blame or I, 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 under, I mean, I fully understand in the middle of a pandemic, buying and selling cars is not the first thing that most people would do. Uh, therefore, you would have had a very difficult time. Well, Richard, first of all, good morning, and thanks for having me on the show. Uh, we're actually quite pleased with our results in second quarter. Uh, we were able to actually uh, fundamentally uh, sell more cars than we were expecting to car uh, to sell and and deliver more more gross profit than we were expecting to deliver. Uh, we were able to drive 74% year-over-year increase in e-commerce sales. And so what's happening is customers are turning to Broom. Um, to buy uh, cars in a contact-free way, given the COVID backdrop. And they're also selling cars to us because of the contact-free environment that we offer both on the, right. the buying right. side and the selling side. So what's the market telling us this morning, in your view? Look at the, the prices down some 20-odd percent. What is the market, what message are you taking from this reaction to your earnings? Yeah, I, I can't speak to stock price, but here's what I can tell you. The real change uh, in our business uh, because of COVID was that now customers are, are purchasing uh, average selling price of cars significantly lower than they were uh, in prior periods for us. So think about that as about a $5,000 drop into the low $20,000 range. And so uh, while we have ascending uh, monthly sequential unit growth uh, that we gave guidance for, as well as ascending gross profit per unit growth, uh, it, it's possible that um, that adjustment to uh, revenue is, is what the street's reacting to. I think that's the message. I think as they start to dissect the, the long-term prospects for the business, which are quite sound, even quarter to quarter, uh, I, I, well, I think that that will, you know, balance itself out. I, I mean, I, I question, are they? I mean, in the sense that I don't doubt that online is the future. But if this goes on for another six months or so, where 
there, there are various forms of restrictions. How will you accommodate that? I mean, you've already done contactless delivery. What more can you now do to stimulate demand and sales? Yeah, it's, it's interesting, Richard. First of all, stimulating demand in our business is not our problem. It's actually keeping uh, inventory on our shelves. Uh, you know, we sold off a lot of our inventory very quickly when the pandemic first hit. And we did that strategically to, to really to, to protect the company and protect our balance sheet. And then as we saw demand came, uh, come back, we started aggressively buying inventory. And so we've now got the highbrow problem of uh, keeping up with demand. The demand is absolutely there. And again, it's because of the entire right. sales process and the delivery process is contact free. So this is just a, it's fundamentally a better way to buy and sell a car. Paul, I'm fascinated by now the differences that you can see, the similarities if indeed there are any differences from from booking holdings through Priceline, travel and all that sort of that sort of stuff to the very nitty gritty of large capital items like automobiles online where you physically got to deliver a very large, heavy item. Is there a difference in the way these transmission mechanisms online work? Yeah, I think fundamentally the e-commerce models are very similar and we've got a lot of pattern recognition between online travel and now online uh, car retailing. Uh, consumers want a great experience online. They want to be able to reach into their pocket and buy or sell their car. They can do that with Groom and they want the convenience of having the vehicle uh, brought directly to their driveway. And again, customers love that from Vroom. So there are a lot of parallels where clearly both, uh, both sets of e-commerce companies were disrupting the status quo in, uh, in travel. It was disrupting traditional uh, travel agents and, and clearly in car retailing, we're disrupting you know, traditional car dealerships and right. customers cool. didn't love that model anyway. And so the fact that they can also buy, uh, you know, a large item like a car and have it delivered, uh, customers love it. And, and we see structural changes in that behavior. Okay. Paul, what, one, one thought does occur to me. I was looking online at your protection promise and you can, you can keep the car for seven days and then hand it back if you don't like it, et cetera, et cetera. How many people actually do return a car after seven or within the first seven days saying, no, not for me. Yeah, it's 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 about five to six percent. But what's really interesting about that, Richard, is that about 20 to 25 percent of those customers actually select another car that that suits them better. And if you think about what that te test drive does, it allows the consumers to actually exercise the vehicle, you know, in their normal habitat. They can, you know, dr drive the car to work. They can right. take the family out to dinner. They can see if it suits them well. And so it's just a far superior test drive than, you know, driving around the dealership, you know, around the block with a stranger in the car. So, you know, we, we offer that as a way to to do that. I'm not sure I'd be brave enough to make the call and say, take it back. Paul, it is good to see you. Thank you for joining us, Paul, the CEO of Vroom. Now, it is first move. It is a Thursday. The market is open, has been open for some seven odd minutes ago. And the movers and the global movers. Uh, Cisco's 
earnings have beat expectations. It's the fourth straight revenue drop. But weak guidance, at least you're getting some guidance, weak guidance uh, on the future, and the stock is off 10%. Lyft is seeing a 61% revenue decline. Ridership improved in July. However, it says it might suspend operations in California over that court ruling, if the courts hold a ruling, drivers are employees. Uber said the same. 3M's higher seeing broad-based improvement in sales. Again, at least we're getting some guidance. And Tapestry is higher, narrower than expected. It's the parent company, you remember, of Coach and Kate Spade. Tapestry, always a weird name, never really understood that one. Strong online sales, though, and Tapestry is just off the nose. After the break on First Move, robots, drones, and the high-tech world of Rwanda, a country that is well-placed to deal with the COVID epidemic. We'll have the IT minister up the break. One and a half million people are in lockdown in New Zealand as the country tries to stamp out an outbreak of COVID, having been free of any form of local transmission over the last three months. Now there has been a resurgence and the country is taking drastic action. 14 new cases have been reported in Auckland. As a result, bars, restaurants and many shops forced to close. On Quest Means Business, Andy Foster, the mayor of Wellington, explained why these draconian measures were necessary. I think New Zealand's approach has been to go hard, go early, and um, the fact that we've had uh, we had it until now 102 days uh, actually free of COVID in our community meant we were able to do an extraordinary number of things which most other parts of the world weren't able to do safely. So, you know, we had crowds of 30, 40,000 people at at, uh, at rugby matches. We had concerts, those sort of things with live audiences, um, which people were able to do safely, and business being able to get up and going again. And I think. Uh, the, the clear message from from our perspective is that um, you can't have you can't sacrifice health and hope to, hope to have your economy going well. Right, but Mayor, the New Zealand has had several cases over the last hundred and two days of, if you like, imported COVID, where you've tested people at airports on arrival. They've been found to have it and had to go into quarantine. This is the first case of community transmission. Do you know how this family, because it is all one family, and they hadn't travelled, is it known how they got it? No, this is one of the things that the health authorities and the government are are looking into at the moment. Um, They've said that they will get some answers to us within about uh, 72 hours of the the announcements which were made our time uh, nine o'clock a day and a half ago. Um, And so we should have some clearer answers about that very soon. But for somebody in your position, I mean, at best you're going to be chasing your tail on this because... If you if your goal is eradication, then it only takes one or two cases like this to require total lockdown with the devastating impact. Now, I know we're not, we've discussed this on this program many times, the balance between, you know, you, you don't put economies first, so to speak. It's, it's not a zero-sum game. But I don't know how you balance that. Well, I think that there are a number of different elements to this. Um, one of the key ones is contact tracing. So, so good contact tracing. I've got to say, we probably 
been a bit slack when we got to we've got a four level system uh, so level four is a is essentially a complete lockdown except for the very essential you know going out and getting food and um and medical uh, supplies and and the services that, that provide those key things um, level one is basically everything's fine with the exception of um of the border uh, and uh, the, the idea is, in theory, we should have been contact tracing at that point. Um, if you do good contact tracing, ultimately you can check if somebody gets the, is um, diagnosed with COVID, uh, then um, you can check who they've been in contact with very, very quickly, and you can isolate all of those people rather than isolating the entire economy. The minister, sorry, the, the mayor of Wellington uh, joining me now. The New Zealand is a population of some 5 million. The African nation of Rwanda is, has a population more than twice the size, 12 million, and it's been praised for its strict contact tracing program. It's using technology left, right and center, both in the hospitals, including robots donated by the UN, taking temperatures, monitoring of patients, and it's pioneering the use of drones to deliver medical supplies and a scheme increasing smartphone ownership all up to the digital economy, none of which should be a surprise if you know anything about the way in which Rwanda has turned itself into the tech hub, if you like, the tech infrastructure hub of Africa. Paula Ingabere is the Minister of Information and Communications Technology and Innovation. Uh, the Minister joins me now. Minister, um, firstly, on the sheer numbers, Rwandas are extremely low even though you're doing lots of testing. So it begs the question, I mean, are these numbers from Rwanda, are they reliable? Thanks, Richard. The numbers are very reliable. And I think the one thing that, uh, um, you know, gives you the statistics that you're seeing, um, one is the uh, social contract that the government of Rwanda has uh, with its people. We definitely, as a government, put in place uh, different measures to contain the pandemic. But also that wouldn't have been possible if we weren't uh, working with a population that is willing and trusting the government uh, to put in place the right interventions. OK. But, OK, so, Minister, the, the idea, Rwanda, I've seen numerous stories about you are being the, the new tech, the Silicon Valley, to use the cliche, uh, of Africa. How are you going to be able to continue that level of innovation during this pandemic when government resources will be needed elsewhere? I think it's a question of uh, understanding the complementarity between um, some of the technology solutions that we are putting to use as we uh, contain uh, the pandemic. So. An example is the drones uh, that today we are using one to uh, broadcast uh, the different uh, prevention measures that uh, the population needs to adhere to, but also the ability to monitor and make sure that you have, um, you know, the population, uh, you know, responding uh, to, to these measures that we're putting in place, for example, social distancing, wearing masks. Um, and so the, the alternative would be to have actual humans on the road in the communities trying to do that. And so what's the most efficient way to do it? If technology gives us that solution, then I think we achieve that objective. And so we've had um, extensive discussions across the government trying to see what's the most effective and efficient way to respond to this. And in many ways, uh, technology has been a response to that. Sure. Another example that I could share is uh, with the robots. 
again, um, as you might, you know, you, as you already know, I mean, all our frontline health workers are at risk when they're dealing with the pandemic. So the, the easier we can reduce that, the better off we as a population, but also our doctor-patient ratio is also still uh, very high. Right. And so if we're able to make sure the doctors are focusing on the critical work and then the routine work is done by robots, I think it's a gain for us. Minister, thank you for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you. Now, in a moment, the coronavirus outbreak has thrown well the difficulties of getting major league sport up and running again. After the break, you'll hear from the CEO of the Boston Red Sox. of how to get major sports up and running again in a safe way is one that's bedeviling all countries. In the United States, a variety of methods is being used. For example, the NBA is keeping, the NBA is keeping players in a so-called protective bubble. Everybody playing in one place, locked off almost from the rest of the world. But in case of pro baseball in the, uh, in the United States, a different way is being adopted. The season's in full swing and more than two dozen cities, as you can see on the map, are being used. There have been outbreaks, marginal outbreaks, among the Miami Marlins and the St. Louis Cardinals. However, can this continue to work? A question for the Boston Red Sox CEO. So far, it's uh, it's going well. We have had a few hiccups. As you know, you mentioned Miami and St. Louis, and it could happen to anyone given the contagious nature of this uh, disease. But so far, we've had less than half of 1% positivity rate since July 1st in terms of the testing. So as long as we all follow the protocols in terms of health and safety, we should be able to get through uh, our regular season and on to a postseason. And it's been fantastic to have baseball back uh, during the summer months here as we all grapple with this uh, uh, terrible pandemic uh, that is affecting so many of us around the globe. Um, now, on the commercial front, I mean, not playing in front of crowds. Uh, I was surprised to learn that 50% of revenue does come from ticket sales. I thought it would be a, a lot less. I thought it mainly was sponsorship. But I was surprised that the, the crowd actually is a significant part of the revenue. So if you haven't got that revenue, how you can't make, you, you can't make ends meet. Therefore, what does that do to the finances of the company and the club? Well, it's a great question. It's been it's very, very difficult, as you point out. We're about a $10 billion uh, industry at Major League Baseball. And, and as you said, more than 50% of our revenues come from our fans and supporters coming through the gates each and every year. Obviously, we play every day uh, from April through uh, the end of September and then postseason play. Um, and so we have so much of our revenue tied up in our fan support. Um, our revenues have been decimated. Uh, each Major League Baseball club owner will be suffering losses well over $100 million uh, each club. Um, so there's been a lot of uh, debt capacity that's been that's been drawn upon uh, and we're financing our way hopefully 
to the other side. Of course, our ownership group is involved with Liverpool Football Club, and we've had to play behind closed doors over there. So um, it is devastating on a short-term basis, but we're all in this for the long haul. We see light at the end of the tunnel, and we hope to welcome fans and supporters back into our venues when the elected officials tell us that it's safe to do so. You know, we're a business program, and much as we like the sort of the sport on the field, uh, we, we need to know the hard lines, uh, the hard bottom lines, uh, so to speak. When you talk about Liverpool and Anfield, and you talk about yourselves, uh, the Boston Red Sox, how long do you think you can keep it going without fans? Great question. Um, our hope, obviously, the virus will determine that the answer to that question. Um, the good news for supporters of Liverpool and fans of the Red Sox, John Henry and Tom Warner and the Fenway Sports Group partnership uh, are well capitalized and um, have the ability to, to keep going. So, as I said, we're in this for the long haul. But realistically, we're hopeful to have fans and supporters back uh, at Anfield and at Fenway Park. Uh, as soon as humanly possible. There we are. That's the way it rumbles. The markets are open. The New York markets are doing business. And that is first move for today. I'm Richard Quest. I will have Quest means business for you in a few hours from now. You can work out the time yourself. I'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.